those of you that are uh, utilizing our children's ministry, we run that through first grade, and you're most welcome to take your children back there now. But for those of you whose children are staying in the service, just by way of reminder, we love having children with us. Again, just learning rhythms of worship and participating uh, in that uh, alongside of the rest of us. And so they're most welcome here. We have at this time um, of our service for, for some time now, we've been working through just our confession of faith, the London Confession of Faith. And um, we are considering together chapter 8 of that confession, which is titled, Of Christ the Mediator. The elders have thought it to be a good idea to just keep our confession in front of you, and this seems like a good way to do that, a good place to do that. But we're going to just allow me to read paragraph 3 this morning to you, and if you're interested, the confession is in the pew in front of you. You can read along with that, or you can look up here at the screen. But it, paragraph 3 of chapter 8 says this, the Lord Jesus, in his human nature, thus united to the divine in the person of the Son, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure, having in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, in whom it pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell, to the end that being holy, harmless, undefiled, and full of grace and truth, he might be thoroughly furnished to execute the office of a mediator in surety, which office he took not upon himself, but was thereunto called by his Father, who also put all power and judgment in his hand and gave him commandment to execute the same. So that is paragraph 3 of chapter 8 of our confession. But if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark chapter 7. The Gospel of Mark chapter 7, we are considering again a passage of Scripture that we began to look at last week, uh, and I, I've titled these two sermons, this pair of sermon, um, the pair of sermons, the, the first to understand the parable, or a parable, because we've seen a, a lot of lack of understanding as it relates to the parables that Jesus has given. We've read about thus far in the Gospel of Mark, not just from uh, those Jewish leaders that were combative and hostile toward Christ and His person and His ministry, but even His own disciples. He had to spend um, extra time explaining the meaning, the significance of the various parables uh, that He uh, would give. Yet we saw last week that this lady, the Syrophoenician, uh, understood a particular parable that Jesus gave, and, uh, and in many ways, uh, Christ marveled at her faith and granted her request. And so we started looking at that last week. Allow me to read it again just to remind us, and then we are going to, I want us to consider three, three more things from our text together. But John Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, he wrote these words, starting in verse 24, going down to verse 30. From there he arose, he meaning Christ, and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and wanted no one to know it, but he could not be hidden. For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him, and she came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Verse 27, but Jesus said to her, and here's the parable, 
Let the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, For this saying, Go your way, the demon has gone out of your daughter. And when she had come to her house, she found the demon gone and her daughter lying on the bed. We go to the Lord in prayer. We thank you, God, for this word. Thank you that you've inspired it. Thank you that you've preserved it for us as well by your spirit. And God, I ask that you would help us to contemplate it well this morning, God, that your spirit would give us eyes to see, Lord, that we would, as a result of having spent time considering this passage, Lord, that we would savor Christ more, Lord, that we would be conformed more into his image. We thank you for the treasure, for the gift that is your word, and that when we hear it, we can be confident that we hear from you. We love you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So as I said last week, we began looking at this passage together, and the, the main takeaways that, that we, we had last week uh, were related to how it is that we should approach a passage of Scripture like this, how it is that we should, in fact, read and study Scripture, how we should interpret Scripture, even how I should approach the preaching of a passage of Scripture like this. And as we went on through the text, we noted, again last week, just the historical and, and grammatical context of this passage as we sought to understand what Jesus meant in his reply to this Syrophoenician woman when he gave the parable in, in verse 27, right? Let the children be filled first, for it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to little dogs. So if you, if you weren't here and you weren't able to listen to that particular sermon, I'd encourage you to go back and do that because I'm building off of that sermon. But I, I wanted us to spend two weeks here because there, there's more for us to consider in this passage. And I, I want us this morning, by God's grace, to see the, um, the, 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 the devotional value of this text. In other words, I want to uh, spiritually, by God's grace, spiritually apply this text. I want us to glean some takeaways from this passage that I think can help us to see Christ more clearly, worship Christ more deeply, and, and be encouraged and be tr- truly comforted by Him. And so, if you're taking notes, and kids, you'll notice this in your, your worship guide as well, I, I'd in, encourage you to jot this down. The first thing that we should consider is that Jesus cannot be hidden. Jesus cannot be hidden. Now, that's a a glorious truth to spend some time pondering this morning. We we see in the second part of verse 24 here, it says, and he entered a house, right? Jesus, he entered a house and he wanted no one to know it, but he could not be hidden. I, I love that phrase, he could not be hidden. Because is it, isn't that the nature of our Savior? Isn't that the nature of our Savior? Now, I want, I want to spread this truth out to, to its edges. I want us to just revel in it for a few minutes, right? Of course, we know that historically, because of the popularity 
of Jesus' ministry, right, in, in, in his first advent, it was nearly impossible for him to, to be alone. It was nearly impossible for him and his humanity to rest, for him to remain hidden. But this statement here by John Mark, again, under the inspiration of the Spirit, it has such beauty to it because it doesn't have an expiration date. And it doesn't have an expiration date. For instance, it, it rings true as we read our Bibles, the living and enduring Word of God. Right? Christ cannot be hidden as we read it faithfully, as we read it rightly, as we read it Christianly, right? as Christians in faith. We talked a little bit about that last week. Christ, he's, he's the centerpiece, right? It's Christ that was promised in the garden as God preached the gospel in light of Adam and Eve's disobedience in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And, and what was promised all throughout the Old Testament as we get familiar with our Old Testaments, it finds its fulfillment in Christ Jesus, right? Jesus, his person, his work. It's, it's not obscure. He isn't in the margins. He isn't a footnote. Right? He's truly the, the cornerstone of our faith. Right? He's the preexistent Son of God who took on flesh so that He might save us, save you, save me. He can't be hidden. All of Scripture testifies about him. And as we read the scriptures, as we study the scriptures, like we talked about last week, as we do so dependent upon the Spirit of God, the Spirit faithfully exalts Christ to us. Jesus says as much when he speaks of the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John chapter 15, verse 26, says this, when the helper comes, and kids, the word helper is referring to the Holy Spirit, and we know that because It says it a little bit later in that verse. Jesus says, when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, get this, he will testify of me. He will testify of me. Not only will Christ not be hidden as we read the Scriptures and as he's illuminated by the Spirit of us, though, but furthermore, Christ also won't be hidden in the nations, right? News about him, particularly his bodily and eternal resurrection, particularly his exaltation, his lordship, it is spreading and it has been spreading for the last 2,000 plus years. And that's by design. That's by design, right? That's the commission that Christ gave to the initial disciples that extends to us his church, his bride today, to go in his authority and to preach the gospel and to give Trinitarian baptisms and to call for obedience, conformity to the word of God and to remember that Christ is spiritually present with his church as they faithfully labor in this magnificent task. Jesus cannot be hidden. Jesus will not be hidden. As we move toward the day in which he returns. In other words, Jesus must be reckoned with. He must be reckoned with. Ultimately, he won't be ignored. He won't be ignored by those that belong to him, of course. But he also won't be ignored by those who don't enjoy fellowship with him. 
In fact, it's an impossibility that he'll be ignored by any creature. The Scripture tells us that the rocks will even cry out, right? Luke chapter 19, verse 40. But we see this all even more vividly on the day. The day and when God in Christ returns. And I love the, the passage of Scripture we read as the call to worship this morning. Because it makes me think about that day. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. If you've been in church for any length of time, you're familiar with that passage, right? It's an incredible passage to consider. Right? Therefore, God also has highly exalted him. Who? Right, Christ. Visibility is implicit here, isn't it? God has highly exalted him, and he's given him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Oh, where? Where? Where are the people that are bowing? And Paul answers, in heaven, right? Those on the earth. Those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God, the Father. Jesus will not be hidden. There will be this universal bowing to our good king. There will be this universal acknowledgement of his lordship in heaven and on earth and under earth. Those even in hell will acknowledge the inescapable reality that Jesus is Lord over everything. Jesus will not, Jesus cannot be hidden. And if that was true, right, Mark 7 here, this documentation that we have of his first advent, if that, if that were true in Christ's first advent, if he couldn't be hidden in his first advent when he came in such a lowly state, how much more true will it be when he returns in his glorified and exalted state? How much more true will this be when he comes to judge the living and the dead? So Jesus cannot be hidden. Secondly, if you're taking notes, the gospel was always meant for all types of people. And the gospel was always meant for all types of people. We began to get at this at the end of the sermon last week. But it's, it's worthy of further consideration this morning. The, the gospel came to the Jews first, then to the Gentiles. We we established the, the ordering of the gospel of God and, and how it's summarized by Jesus in this parable that he gives to the Syrophoenician in our text. We, we established that last week, right? You, ha- you have to start somewhere, right? God set apart a people for himself, right? Ethnic Israel, so that they might be the lamp to the nations testifying about Jesus, so that ethnic Israel might become spiritual Israel, so that, in other words, we as Gentiles might be grafted, adopted into the family of God that began with the Jewish people that are in Christ, right? That, that Israel would be made up of both ethnic Christian Jews and people from every other tribe and tongue and nation, and, and that was always the case, right? God didn't alter or change the plan. That was always the plan. And again, think of Mark's readers in the Roman Empire, 
right? The, cl- the case was clearly made, and we've seen this theme repeated that even the worst types of people, and I'm not saying this woman here, this Syrophoenician, was this horrible person, right? We don't know that. We don't have any evidence of that. But in the eyes of the Jewish religious leaders, she would have been solely because of who she was. They would have called her a dog, right? And again, we talked about how Jesus strategically used little dog, the Greek word that meant little dog, instead of the Greek word that meant dog, and how dog was meant to, to tear down and to, to call someone unclean or filthy, and, and little dog kind of captured that, that uh, captured the verbiage that was familiar there in the first century as it related to how particularly the Jewish leaders looked at Gentiles, but he added a twist to it by pulling out the things that were derogatory about the word. But the, the Jewish religious leaders, they would have thought she was unsavable. She, she lived in a pagan land. Her background was pagan. So again, no, no salvation for her, according to the Jewish leaders. And the question is, the burning question, I, I could imagine it's on the forefront of the minds of Mark's readers. Is there salvation for any non-Jew? Is there salvation for any non-Jew? Which, it, which means, is Jesus, is Jesus the mediator of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, or he, is he the mediator for the Jews only? This passage, especially read in context with the rest of Scripture, it makes it abundantly clear that while there is an order that God ordained before the foundation of the earth, the gospel of God is good news for all different types of people, which includes not just all different types of people from nationalities, but it also includes, and we'll talk about this more in just a moment, all different types of sinners, right? All different types of sinners, And that's good news for us, right? Because apart from this being God's plan, apart from him graciously grafting us in based on the merits of Jesus alone, we would still, all of us, be in our sins. We'd have no hope. We would inherit everything that we deserve, namely misery and wrath and judgment. You know, I've I've told you this several times as we've worked through the gospel of Mark together, but some of the early church fathers considered Mark's gospel uh, to be Peter's memoirs, right? And, And I've noted throughout our study how that could in fact be the case, and I think this historical account is another example of that, right? Peter would have been with Jesus when this Syrophoenician woman approached Jesus, and, and we see what the disciples wanted to do when she did approach Jesus, because Matthew, which is the only other accounting of this historical event that we have, but Matthew gives us some insight into what they thought. In chapter 15 of Matthew, the second part of verse 23, this was the disciples' counsel to Jesus. Send her away, for she cries out after us. Right? Just send, send her away. In other words, She's causing a scene. She's causing a scene. Don't you know the type of person that she is, Jesus? Maybe there's even a concern amongst the disciples of being ceremonially unclean because of her. This Gentile from this particular region. 
Maybe there's a concern about reputation. I don't know. Either way, the disciples wanted Jesus initially to to put this lady away, to send her away. Now, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. Because I want to harmonize these two accounts for us, because it's here that we see God call Peter to evangelize a Gentile named Cornelius. And the vision that God gives, and consequently Peter's conclusion from that vision, it gives us some insight into our text here in Mark chapter 7. And, and just so we know where we are when we're at Acts chapter 10, right? This is, this is a, a good while after the healing of the Syrophoenician's daughter, right? And in fact, this is after the death and resurrection and exaltation, ascension of Jesus. So Luke is, is the one who, who wrote Acts. He's documenting in Acts the, the spread of the early church. And this historical account gives us insight into how God's kingdom was growing. Now, I'm not going to read all the verses because the passage is long and you can read it in its entirety later today. But let me summarize the events leading up to the passage that I'm about to read in Acts 10. First, we, we have two people. Okay, We have Peter, who's a Jew, and we have, and he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. And we have Cornelius, who's a Gentile, and he's a centurion. He's like a, a, a guard. Both are given visions from God. Okay, In, in Cornelius' vision, God directs him to send some men to a place called Joppa and to find Peter, and that Peter will come and will tell Cornelius what to do. In other words, Peter's going to come, and he's going to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to Cornelius and to those that are in his household, those who are eagerly awaiting, who have been primed and prepped by the Spirit of God to hear the gospel of Jesus. Now, at the same time that this is happening, God gives a vision to Peter, and, and Peter's vision, kids, consists of all types of animals in, his, in this vision that he has. And they're all, they're all animals that, um, that Jewish people would have considered to be uh, out of bounds as far as uh, eating, that they would not be allowed to eat. They were deemed unclean. And as Peter sees these animals, God says to Peter, arise, kill, and eat. Now, Peter's reply is what you would expect any good Jew, devoutly Jewish person to say, right? He says that he's never eaten anything common or unclean. He's kind of confused about the vision that God's given him. Now, God's response is interesting, and it's relevant to our text. He says in verse 15 of Acts 10, he says, what God has cleansed, you must not call common or or unclean. Now, as Peter ponders what that vision means, these men from Cornelius's house, they come and they knock on his door and they ask Peter to accompany them. And Peter does this because just before they arrived, the Spirit of God said, Two pe- these people are going to show up, ask you to go with them. Go. And when Peter comes to this house of Cornelius, right, a Jew at the house of a Gentile, right? A, a person from the household of God in the home of someone that would have been considered by the Jewish religious leaders as a dog, right? Peter realizes the vision that he had related to the far-reaching nature of the gospel. 
and that the gospel extends to those who were considered by Jewish people to be common or unclean, and that the gospel of God does not discriminate. So pick up with me in verse 34 in Acts chapter 10. It says this, then Peter, he's in, he's in the household of Cornelius. It says, Peter opened his mouth and he said this, in truth I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, who they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. It's on down through verse 43. So we have Peter preaching the gospel to the household of Cornelius. He's preaching to those who would have been considered common, considered unclean, and he's doing so because God made it abundantly clear that while there is, yes, an order to the plan of salvation, and while the Jewish people were the initial inheritors of this great gospel, the gospel of God has always included all types of people. And we see in the response of Cornelius in his home what has been labeled by some as the Pentecost of the Gentiles, right? The pouring out of the Spirit of God and their subsequent baptism that God had, had in fact, ordained for them, for Gentiles to be grafted in. But look back, just let me, allow me to read a few more verses. Flip to just chapter 11. Because we're trying to get in the mindset of just how, 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 how much this had to shift the thinking of those who were initially entrusted with the gospel of God. Because we see Peter teach the rest of the apostles and the brethren this important truth, that the gospel is for Gentiles too. Start with verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 1. Now the apostles and the brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision, get this, contended with him, saying, you went, into, you went into uncircumcised men and you ate with them. Right? So we see how this perspective needed to be corrected, don't we? But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning. Right? And, he, and he gives his vision. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object descending like a great sheet, let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. When I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, birds of the air. And I heard a voice say to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered into my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. 
Now, this was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. At that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house who said to him, Send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you and your household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore, and this is critical, if therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? That's crucial. If God said the gospel is for the Gentiles too, to behave otherwise is to oppose God himself. Verse 18 says, when they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God saying, then God is also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Now, I can't help but to think that if Peter helped Mark with the compiling of this historical account in his gospel years after the ascension of Jesus, Right, that Peter's recollection of Jesus and the Syrophoenician was colored now by his vision from God in Acts 10 and his preaching of the gospel to Cornelius. Right? He maybe looked back on that encounter and what Jesus did and what Jesus said. And he finally realized perhaps that he wasn't seeing things quite clearly then, right? He finally saw that Jesus was teaching the very same thing that he was taught through this vision and this experience in Cornelius' house, right? He was taught that the gospel of God is for all types of people. In church, if that's true of nationalities, right? If, that, if that's true of nationalities, that, that has to be true for different types of sinners as well, doesn't it? It has to be true of different types of sinners. And we should see an, an encouragement here. We should see here that the gospel really does save all types of sinners. That there's no sin too great to make null and void the grace of our God. And this should encourage us in at least two ways. First, for those of us who feel that we've really crossed a line, that, that we've really blown our lives up, and, and maybe you have, right? Maybe you've really messed things up, and you know it, and, and the people around you know it. I want you to hear me well this morning. The, the gospel is for you too. The gospel is for you too. And the gospel is more powerful, it's more potent than your sin. Yes, there are varying degrees of consequences in this life for varying degrees of sin, yet at the same time, your sin can be washed clean. Your sin can be washed clean. How? How do, we, how, how do we get these stains out? Through the blood of our spotless lamb. He can wash you clean. He can get out the deepest stain of your sin. No matter what you've done. When you come to him in repentance and in faith, he'll wash you clean. 
There's also a lesson here for those of us who somewhere along the way begin to trust in our own righteousness and perhaps our self-righteous. To oppose a sinner that's been reconciled by God, to treat her or him with partiality, though the gospel of God has been extended to them and has changed them, is to oppose God himself. It's to oppose God himself. Peter learned this lesson on both fronts, didn't he? He denied Jesus, right? In the hour in which Christ was arrested and put on this faux trial to be executed. But Peter denied Jesus. He denounced him. And we also see that Peter initially had strong opinions about the Gentiles, though God had cleansed them. And he was, as we know it, right? If we know the testimony of Peter, he was restored by Christ after he denied Christ. And he learned that to show partiality to different types of people as it relates to God's kingdom is to oppose God himself. So the gospel of God is for all types of people, nationalities, all types of people, sinners. And then the final thing for our consideration this morning, we should faithfully come to Jesus, even in the worst of times. We should faithfully come to Jesus even in the worst of times. I'm struck by the persistence of this mother. And she continued after Christ. She apparently was causing a scene, wasn't she? The reformer Martin Luther, he said of this woman, she took Christ at his own words. He then treated her not as a dog, but as a child of Israel. Now, from our vantage point, how did she take Christ at his own words? Well, I think of the parable of the persistent widow, Luke chapter 18. You don't have to turn there, but just let me read it to you quickly, just the first eight verses. Jesus speaking this parable, and again, Luke, who documented Acts, also wrote the gospel of Luke. It says, he, Jesus, spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, there was a certain city... There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Right at the beginning of this Luke chapter 18 passage, we see Luke, who again wrote Acts, but we see Luke under the inspiration of the Spirit give his commentary, give his interpretation of this parable up front before he even gives us the actual parable. He says that Jesus gave this parable to teach that, quote, Men always ought to pray and not lose heart. Right? And then we see Jesus give the parable of an unjust judge that grants the request of this widow who's been wronged, and he grants it to her just so that she'll stop pestering him about the whole matter. Now, God is nothing like an unjust judge, is he? He's just. He's 
good, and he providentially cares for the world that he's made. So Jesus contrasts the unjust judge with the fatherly care of God, and he makes this point. If the unjust judge answered this woman's petition, right, gave her what she rightfully requested, because what she was requesting was just. It was in accordance with the law, then how much more will God faithfully answer our pleas, our requests, according to His good and unchanging character? God cares for us. He provides for what we need. He avenges His elect, His very own people, the people that He specifically called out to be His. So we hear the interpretation again. Pray and don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. That's what this Syrophoenician woman was doing as she broke with Jew and Gentile customs and came to Jesus on behalf of her daughter. She came and she pled her case before Jesus according to his nature, according to his word. She again, as Martin Luther pointed out, took Jesus at his word. And the Lord answered her. And she came to Jesus in the hour of her need. She came to him in the worst of circumstances. She came to him knowing that apart from him, her daughter could not be saved. She petitioned our Lord. And in her petitioning of our Lord, she worshiped our Lord. Some of you right now are in a season that you could classify as the worst of times. I know this because many of you have shared your struggles with me. Many of you know the challenges my family has faced over these last few years. It's been an extremely difficult season of life for us. Yet, here we all have together, no matter what's going on in our lives, this example of the Syrophoenician to come to Christ, to petition Christ, to abide with Christ. We have the Words of the Holy Spirit in Luke's account of the unjust judge to pray and not lose heart. And certainly we hear this in the, Jesus' words, the echo of this in Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. Right? The invitation, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. I don't know how Jesus will answer our prayers. Meaning, I I don't know what the outcomes will be to our various prayers. Maybe the prayers we're presently praying don't quite line up with God's will for our lives. Chris Mooring once told me, and and I think he told me he got this from John Piper, but we hadn't been able to locate it. But he told me he sometimes tries to pray this way. God, I know you'll answer my prayer or do something better, do something more glorious. The, the prayer of an eternal optimist right there, right? But how, how true is that? How true is that? Right? I love that perspective, right? A lot of times God's plan, God's purpose for us requires us to walk a long, hard road. And many, many times the answers that we're looking for they don't come the way that we would prefer that they come. But the Lord is doing something in us, some of which we can discern, lots which we can't discern, 
but the Lord, through the valley of the shadow of death that often is our lives, he's doing good to our soul. And he's doing good to our soul. He's making this beautiful tapestry, and we'll stand before him one day in pure joy, right? in, in pure adoration, in pure contentment, knowing that his persevering of us was all worth it. So faithfully come to Christ. Faithfully come to Christ. Even in the worst of times, keep coming. Keep coming. Keep praying. Even if your mind is jumbled and the words don't seem to form, keep coming to Christ. Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no more sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for allowing us to spend time in your word together. We thank you that you use it to minister to us. And we have confidence and faith that you're using it now. So Lord, help us in our unbelief. Help us, Lord, to See Christ more clearly through your word, by your spirit. Help us to rest, help us to be content in you. And we love you, our delight. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.